Laura. Hi, Alison. Welcome to those of you who are listening to us. This is Spotlight on France. So, Alison, remember Balance Ton Port? I do. Yes, it was the French version of the Me Too hashtag, yeah. meaning um, out or denounce your pig. Yeah, yeah. It was coined in 2017 by a woman named Sandra Mueller. She's a journalist. Yes, yeah, a journalist who accused a former French TV executive on social media. Yeah, and so the tweet in the tweet sheet, she called on women to use this hashtag, so Balance Ton Port, to talk about sexual harassment at work. And at the same time, she out the executive, she named him Eric Brion, saying that he'd made comments about her breasts and other sexually explicit comments towards her. Um, the hashtag caught on. She made headlines, I mean, even around the world internationally. Yeah. Uh, but this week, she was convicted of defamation. A court ordered her to pay him a 20,000 euro fine. Wow, that's, that's full on, isn't it? Yeah, so Brion said her accusations hurt his reputation. He also argued that his comments weren't harassment. The way French libel laws work, he won. The accused turns on the accuser and wins. That seems incredible. Yeah. Now, to be fair, another case like this went to court a few months ago and had a very different result. This was Denis Baupin. He was a lawmaker, and he was accused by several women of sexual harassment. He argued in court that those accusations were defamation, but he lost. That was because his accusations had been made in court. So in France, it would seem the court of public opinion is not the best place to go and air your grievances. Not at all. No, you have to be really careful, actually. What I found was another interesting and perhaps more you know, pressing part of this court ruling is that the court didn't consider that the comments in question were actually harassment. So saying, oh, I love you, you've got big tits, you know, come into my bed, that's not considered harassment. No, no. And they said that sexual harassment involves repetition and serious mm. pressure. The fact that Mueller referenced only an isolated incident, according to the court, it doesn't count. Also, um, he wasn't her boss. So the line of what constitutes harassment is still not terribly clear here. No, not at all. Um, Mueller said, of course, she's going to appeal the ruling. She did say that the ruling kind of silences other victims and other women who would be willing to come forward. Though I have to say the hashtag that she coined, Balance Ton Port, certainly has opened up women. I mean, it's helped people come forward. There have been hundreds of thousands of posts using it describing harassment or sexism in France. Now, the fight for recognition and equality is still very far from one in France. I recently met a young feminist who focuses on an issue that I wouldn't have really thought about as feminist, though when I thought about it, I guess it is. It's menstruation. I remember a few years ago, Sarah, there was a, there was a movement to change the VAT tax on tampons and pads, which is actually standard and rather high. And that was a, a fight led by feminists. Yeah, yeah. And it turns out that periods and sort of reproductive health in general is sort of the next big fight, the next frontier of French feminism. So the woman I talked to, Eva Luna Toulance, is the editor of Cyclique, Cyclical, it's a website that focuses on periods, on menstruation and reproductive health. I sat down with her recently at a cafe in Paris to talk about periods. She's 22 years old and she remembers learning about menstruation in middle school. I learned about it when I was 13, which is when, you know, most people already have their period at this point. We are supposed to get three sexual health class starting primary school until the end of high school. The reality is that I only had one sexual health class in the entirety of my education. What was your experience? It's very factual, like you learn about the cycle. It wasn't told to me as something that happens in my body. It was just something like this very like 
far off scientific thing that we just had to learn because it was on our program. Where, where do periods in menstruation appear in French culture? Is it something that's joked about? Are there certain words for it that people use, like as euphemisms? How does it get processed in the French culture? Well, it doesn't really appear anywhere in a French culture. I mean, that's that's the thing about a taboo. No one talks about it. We have jokes about it. One that I really like is that uh, the British are coming because, you know, they were all red, so uh, that's a pretty common joke. So you're saying, like, that's one way of talking about that your period is coming, you say the British are coming. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got a bunch of, like, phrases to talk like, about it. Like what? Well, I've got my reds. One that I didn't know is j'ai mes ours. Like, I've got my bears. So all of this has been a taboo. Girls grow up with funny words for it and whatever you don't really talk about it but things are starting to change it would seem you're starting to see for example Le Monde the big newspaper did a whole series on menstruation recently I mean government ministers are talking about it what what has changed uh, well in France it all started with the uh, tampon tax uh, because tampons used to be taxed as luxury items uh, they were taxed at 20% whereas like primary need items were tax at five and a half percent so there was this protest five years ago to put tampons at a primary item tax like the same tax as shampoo or soap or bread or toilet paper so that happened which was great and that's when period activism started in france and now it's a big subject in feminism I mean, gynecological health is a big subject in France at the moment. There's a bunch of Instagram accounts that talk about it. Menstruation is like it's like a fourth of your fertile life you spend on your period. So obviously it's a very important part of this general fight. And it, it has some like specific issues as well. Like there's a huge taboo around menstruation and there are some illnesses that are specific to menstruation, like endometriosis. It's very hard to get a diagnosis because there's this idea that women are exaggerating when they're on their period and they're hurting. So I think uh, the average length for diagnosis is like six years. But, but even on a, just a regular level, regular menstruation requires a certain amount of care. And I feel like that's something that seems to have come up with more and more people talking about menstruation publicly is this idea of menstrual precariousness. I wouldn't say menstrual precariousness. I would say menstrual poverty. Menstrual products are very expensive and not everyone has access to it, especially homeless people. So some people will use like dirty socks or newspapers or like anything to keep themselves clean. The State Secretary for Equality uh, in France, Marlene Schiappa, has started to look into it and uh, she's trying to find ways to counter it. Uh, we've been invited to talk about it with her, which is very cool. What did you say? What are the sort of things that you would like to see happen? So basically, uh, we want all menstrual products to be fully covered by social security. Because like condoms are covered by social security now and menstrual products are just as important as condoms. What about things like um, taking into account menstruation when we're getting days off or sick days? In France today, could you ask for days off of work for that and get sick leave? There's no menstrual leave in France and if you talk about it in HR, it's definitely going to be weird. It is a subject that needs to be spoken about because obviously sometimes you 
get your periods and even if you don't have endometriosis you just feel like hell and you just need a sick leave and it should be normalized. We're talking here on an institutional <coughs> level but it seems like maybe a lot of this is changing more in pop culture and the, on the grassroots Instagram accounts. I'm thinking about this woman who did her Instagram um, show of going around without protection and bled all over her pants and took pictures of it and it, and it made kind of buzz. Yeah, uh, Irene, a few months ago, she went around Paris without protection and just bled all over her leggings to talk about menstrual poverty. What is very good about that is that her character like can touch younger people and she talks a lot about sexual health and just feminism in general. Did you feel any negative blowback on that at all? She's still being harassed to this day by guys who think that it's disgusting and uh, there was a lot of people who were very admiring of what she did but also a very huge, gross chunk of people who were just disgusted by what she did. I imagine that you get that as well in your own work and what you're writing. We definitely did have some people who were ver just very upset about us showing menstrual blood. Because it really does still disturb people. Some people are just very upset. They'll tell us that it's something that must stay private. And obviously we don't care about those people, but they are the prime example of why we're doing this. What then, you know, besides making the products reimbursed by Social Security and having more access to just care on a physical level, what are the kinds of things that you would like to see change in France? Uh, well, just normalized periods. I, I just want to see people be okay with it as a natural thing and which if people were chill about it, we would have way less problems <laughs> surrounding it. Um, what about on the educational level? Should it be starting earlier in school? Well, you know, if it's in the law and people aren't doing it, like what's keeping them from doing it? It's, again, that taboo surrounding sexuality. Is it what? It's, you know, teachers just uncomfortable with it? I think it's more global than just teachers. I think it's directors who don't want that to happen in their school. I think it's parents who don't want to have their kids to be taught about sexuality. And so teachers are afraid of the backlash. And it's just this whole, just comes full circle. No one wants to talk about it, so no one talks about it. And so going back to your work and, and work of feminists, is that is that where it's going to come from, do you think? People who just push it and say, let's keep talking about it? Well, nothing's ever been gained without activists being angry. And it all comes from, you know, talking about it and talking about it until people can't avoid this subject anymore. And I feel like we're getting close to it because uh, right now there's... Uh, Okay, so like 3D printed clitorises are mandatory in biology classes. Uh, I think it started this year. So now we're going to talk about female pleasure in biology class, which, which is pretty cool. Like I would have loved to learn about it in school. And that changed because activists last year were just talking about the clitoris everywhere. And now it's a normal subject. Periods are a bit more taboo than, you know, female pleasure, but we're getting there. I got that flow! Let's turn back the clock to La Belle Époque, the late 19th century. It was a time of optimism in France and dancing. Hi. 
130 years ago this week, the Moulin Rouge, the Red Windmill, which is now one of the world's most famous cabarets, opened its doors at the foot of Montmartre in Paris. It was a time of peace and relative prosperity in France, an optimistic time when people were thirsty for a bit of frivolity. And they got just that with dancers like La Goulou and Nini Patonlaire, Nini with her legs in the air, doing the high kick in the cancan. Yeah, all those girls showing off their frilly underpants. And immortalized uh, by painters like Toulouse-Lautrec. He was a local boy. Um, the Moulin Rouge became a kind of gallery for both his paintings and those of his comrade Auguste Renoir, who was also one of the Montmartre artists at the time. So it all sounds quite frivolous, but the knickers and the high kicks were actually inspired by the spirit of revolt on the barricades in 1848. I guess kicking down the barricades. That's I mean, right. of course, 1848, that was the second wave of the French Revolution after 1789. Exactly. The hall also became one of the very first places where you had a bit of a cross-section of society coming in, where the bourgeoisie, the nobility and the working classes could sort of come together in the same building. Same building, but probably not sitting next to each other. I think you're right. <laughs> The mill, the Moulin, was built especially for the venue to draw people in. Montmartre at the time had several mills, right? It had been a, a village near Paris and it had been annexed into the city not that long before in 1860. And it wasn't a functional mill, but it was a great attraction. And it was the first electrified building in Paris. <laughs> The Moulin Rouge contributed to making the Cancan famous. The name reportedly was given by an Englishman who described the dance as a funny, noisy dance that came from France. Yeah, not the world's greatest poet, perhaps. <laughs> the venue took off immediately. It was the beginning of dance reviews with shows called Voluptata, Feuille de Vigne and Rêve d'Egypte. But there were limits as to what the audience were prepared to accept or even dream about. What do you mean, like in terms of clothing? Clothing not, optional? <laughs> <laughs> not just, but one show from 1902 showed a nude Cleopatra. She was carried by four young men and accompanied by some young naked girls. Ooh. That was considered a bit too much. And then in 1907, there was a huge scandal when the actress Colette Willy, the star of Rêve d'Egypte, the dream of Egypt, had a long, passionate embrace with her mistress on stage. That was all part of an impromptu pantomime. How scandalous. Indeed, and it lasted... 15 minutes. Whoa. <laughs> Newspaper reports recall a fight breaking out, sealing the Moulin Rouge's reputation as a place perhaps of loose morals. It might have also added to the appeal of the place. I think so. In 1915, it was destroyed by fire, but it rose out of the ashes in 1926 with big reviews and new stars came along like the French actress and singer Miss Danguette and Josephine Baker, of course, from the US. Miss Danguette brought in the feathers, the sequins and the glitter that have become so much a part of the reviews at the Moulin Rouge. And like a lot of theatres, the Moulin Rouge has its superstitions. Since 1962, with the show Frou Frou, meaning frilly, all the other 11 reviews have also begun with the letter F. So we've had Frisson, Fascination, Festival, and the current one, which has been running for 20 years, is called Ferry, but still no flop. Sarah, 
have you noticed all these cyclists whizzing around town looking at their smartphones with big packs on their back? Yeah, I have. I noticed them definitely whizzing past me on my bike. They're food delivery guys, right? Um, I guess I'm used to seeing them in New York. Having your food delivered there is kind of a way of life. Yeah, but they're pretty new here in France. The culture here has always favoured the home-cooked sit-down meal, or at worst, a ready-made meal, but at least that you put in the microwave all by yourself. But that culture uh, started to really shift in round about 2015 when the UK food delivery platform Deliveroo started offering food from bistros and the menus of, of fast food joints. Oh, that's the the turquoise ones, right? Yeah, yeah Deliveroo, a uh, uh, turquoise. Then you've got other apps like Stuart, that's the French one. You've got uh, a green one uh, called Glovo, <laughs> which is based in Spain. And above all, uh, the leader currently is Uber Eats. That's from the US ride-hailing giant Uber. So they've now all joined in the fun, and it's become a booming trend here in France. It's revolutionizing eating habits, and, of course, it's providing lots of new part-time work, especially for students. It's thought there are between 20 to 25,000 couriers in France working for these food platforms. You just need a bike, a smartphone, European ID, you register, you log on to the app when you're available. And then when a restaurant gets an order, and you're the nearest courier, you go and pick it up and you deliver. The platforms pay on average about €3.60 for each delivery. So it sounds like a, not a terrible way of making a bit of extra cash in your free time. Indeed, but it's not all rosy. There's now increasing talk of exploitation of wages going down, increasing pressure, which then leads to accidents. And when things do go wrong, there's a lack of protection and course for the couriers themselves. So in March 2017, a collective known as CLAP, that means Independent Deliverymen's Collective in Paris, was founded to work on labour issues for the couriers. Jean-Daniel Zamor is its co-founder. He spent two years working as a courier, but he told me he soon became disillusioned. At the beginning, I did it because I wanted to earn some money next to my school and my job, and it was outside and... Uh, we were doing some sports, so I, I wanted to give it a shot. But uh, I w also wanted to uh, know uh, Paris backward and forward. And I thought that it would be a great opportunity to do that. But then you discovered quite quickly that it wasn't as glorious as you, as you hoped. I learned quickly that uh, it was a little bit hard to be a writer in Paris in general, actually, for these platforms. Because... Uh, at the beginning, we had a minimum wage per hour, but after one week, it disappeared. And one week after, the bonus were less than what they used to be. I understood quickly that I needed to help people that were working with these platforms full-time. So what, it's just the pressure? It's that you, you've got to do more, faster and faster? The main issue is the fact that they are continuously decreasing the money per order. Therefore, in order to win as much as we used to earn, we have to be faster and faster. It's really difficult and dangerous, and therefore we have to work much more than we used to be. That's why at the beginning there was a lot of students, but now there is not that much students because uh, it takes too much time to uh, earn his life with that job. So the people that are working as riders, who are they for the most part? There is a lot of immigrant workers that are working illegally. They take the account of someone that... Uh, they take a fake identity. Yes, but uh, the other person take uh, a percentage of their uh, income.
Okay, so some of these guys are registered on the apps and they're renting out their accounts to migrants who don't have working papers. Pretty illegal. How aware are the apps of this, of this practice? Well, Uber Eats, for example, says that it has staff doing spot checks to try and stop illegal or underage work. All of the platforms say that they don't approve of this, they don't think it's a good thing, but clearly it's a difficult thing to monitor. And when you're desperate to keep your costs low and then there are people accepting the work, they end up sometimes taking huge risks. A recent video showed a rider out on a busy ring road with lorries literally whizzing by. It went viral on Twitter. It shows the risks that these people are prepared to take, but unfortunately it's quite common. I mean, I guess the dangers involved, you know, the low wages... All this is kind of the same for everybody, right? Worldwide, I mean, and in general, in the gig economy, you kind of get this flexibility and the freedom, but also no guarantee of work and, and not much support. Why is it any worse in France? There are certainly some countries like the US, as you know, and to a certain extent, the UK, where they have a much more liberal economy, whether that's a good thing or not. People are more accustomed to changing jobs, having zero contracts. They're more accustomed to having a certain amount of precarity, kind of just weaved into their everyday life. France is changing, and this government in particular is definitely trying to free up the job market. It's already modified the labour law to make it easier to hire and fire. But society in general is much slower to adapt, mm. and that's where the Uberization is particularly problematic in France, says Jean-Daniel Zamor. It's more complicated in France because the French culture is not suit for uh, this kind of economy. In France, we glorify permanent contracts. It's like something really important. It's a holy grail. And it's impossible for precarious workers to get access to things like a bank loan or uh, a flat. And uh, therefore, there is like two different worlds that is clashing. And it's worlds that are clashing. They are pulling in the opposite direction. And uh, the precarious workers are unable to get access to flat or apartment or even uh, cars because now uh, a lot of cars are getting throughout a loan and there is a, the other world where they have access to these flats, to this bank loan. There is a, a huge separation and uh, it's like now in Paris there is two different worlds. So not happy about this two-pronged society, so what do these couriers actually want? Do they want permanent contracts? Not all of them, ironically enough, says Zamor. There is companies in Paris that are currently hiring riders on the permanent contract, but they are struggling in order to find someone. That's a bit paradoxical, so we can not say that workers want to be employees. So they want to keep the freedom, but have more control over what they earn, when they work, in a way, they want, like we say in English, to have your cake and eat it. No? Uh, no. I think that the worst part in uh, this gig economy is the fact that we are not able to speak for ourselves. We can't negotiate with the platform, and that's our main demand. We want to be able to have a real negotiation with the platforms and to be able to speak with them and to force them to listen to us. 
Okay, so what has this collective actually obtained for these bike couriers? Well, they encouraged the couriers to go on strike. That was in August. And they also encouraged clients to boycott these platforms for one day. They said that was fairly well followed. And that does seem to have borne some fruit because there have been consultations between the couriers and CLAP and Uber Eats. And Uber Eats has just introduced new rates for its food delivery couriers, reducing the commission it takes from 25 to 5% and at the same time lowering the rate it pays per order. Hmm. But on balance, it means that after tax, it's considered to be a slight improvement. Zamor says they'll keep pushing for improvements like that and more rights. And if they don't get satisfaction, then they'll call for another strike. Well, so now I remember that Uber, right, the parent company, when it showed up in France, it was, you know, the ride sharing company. They were competing with taxis and it became a huge deal. And the government got involved in terms of protecting, you know, the taxi rights versus Uber. In this case, it's Uber, it's not the same industry, but are we seeing the same kind of government concern in terms of protecting these workers and these jobs? No. Ah, I see. <laughs> no, CLAP says no, and perhaps, yeah, I mean, these are not taxi drivers, mm -hmm. right? These are, for the most part, 20, 22-year-old, uh, mainly guys, and including plenty of immigrant origin. So not the same kind of political clout, perhaps. Abs absolutely. So CLAP says um, they don't seem to have the support of the government, which actually at the moment is pushing through a mobility bill, which is seen as favouring the platforms over the couriers themselves. You mean like encouraging more bike delivery? and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and basically not putting the brakes in any way on the platforms and themselves. But the couriers do have the support of parties on the left. The hard left France Unbowed party is going to be showing a film called Sorry We Missed You by Ken Loach, which really details in very starkly the ravages of the gig economy. They're going to be showing that in the National Assembly next week. You don't work for us, you work with us. So you have a contract to get paid for the visits? Keep this happy. Of course, Sarah, they'll be showing the version dubbed in French so that people really get the message that there has to be more thought put into how the gig economy develops in France. That's to say the sky is not necessarily the limit where these platforms are concerned. So we're coming to the end of this episode. Um, I don't know, Allison, are you going to go home and uh, order some takeout from Uber Eats? Yeah. <laughs> it might be hard to do after that. <laughs> I think I'd be accused of, of gross hypocrisy if I did, but I will be going home on my bike, that's for sure. Good enough for me and my Bobby. Today's episode was mixed by Thibault Baduel. If you want to get in touch with us, send an email to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And why not subscribe to the podcast if you like it? Get the word out. One way to do that uh, is to give us a, a rating. Five stars, of course. You can even leave a review. It's one of the best ways to help people find us. Thanks for listening. Thanks. See you next week. He's looking for